it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. We have a big hour coming your way. Charles Gasparino is standing by. Vivek Remeswamy will be with us. Uh, fresh off not only his appearance uh, with us, uh, he's got his book out. He's also fresh off Bill Maher. We've got to get his take on what it was like on that HBO show where he got a lot of pushback, but I don't think he minds. Charles Gasparino, as I mentioned, standing by. Of course, all eyes are on the hurricane, so let's get started. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by Crunch Fitness. Interested in owning your own business in a growing $30 billion industry? Check out Crunch Fitness at crunch.com. Number three. We all need to work together regardless of party lines. Uh, The Biden administration has approved our request for a pre-landfall declaration and did that very quickly. And it's my sense that the administration, you know, wants to help. Hurricane Ian, the likes of which we have not seen in decades, bears down on the entire state of Florida. It's actually wider than the peninsula. Are we ready? Governor DeSantis, President Biden finally speak. Does that mean we'll actually work together? Let's hope. Number two. The murder rate still 30 percent above its 2019 level. They're all from the Council on Criminal Justice. So I'll, I'll say this. Um, that same story also uh, stated that the crime is complicated and multifaceted. Ha! <laughs> Crime matters to Americans, multifaceted and just faceted. More each day as almost every community begins to feel the growing threat. Sadly, I predicted this clearly and concisely amidst the Democratic war on cops simmering for years on American streets. Number one. We've certainly seen headline inflation on a month over month basis. Uh, slow dramatically. We've seen energy prices come down, gas prices, and that's offset price increases elsewhere. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Brian Deese, Money Matters, from the fallout over the student loan forgiveness, rising gas prices, interest rates, and now a housing slump and job loss remains. It's crashing in on the administration's economy. Everyone seems to realize it except for those in the Biden bubble. Uh, Charles Gasparino, not in the Bible bubble, but he's in the Fox business bubble as a senior correspondent, New York Post columnist. Charles, welcome back. I'm not in that bubble either, by the way. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're out of a bubble. You break out of bubbles. So, it, I mean, I'm looking at the markets under 30,000. I'm seeing all these numbers that are kind of ominous. I feel as though everybody's predicting housing's going to suffer. Is the administration choosing, instead of saying, I feel your pain, they're saying, I, I'm ignoring your pain? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't understand the play from them other than uh, there's some grand scheme here. You know, it's the conspiracy theorist in my head thinking that if the economy does suffer, which it's going to we're going to go into a recession. There's no doubt the market's going to sell off. That it's a, an opportunity to expand the scope of government and, uh, you know, and be, as Biden always takes uh, pleasure at stating, where he can be more, quote unquote, transformative than Barack, meaning uh, Barack Obama, the former president who he served under as vice president. He takes, from what I understand, he takes uh, immense pride and, and pleasure at a stating that he actually. That, you know, increase government control over our lives much more than uh, than Obama, who was, you know, 
I remember back then people were like questioning whether Obama was a socialist or not. And, you know, we got, we, you know, we got Obamanomics now on steroids with, with, with Biden and all these programs, loan forgiveness, spending gazillions of dollars at will. And um, in the face of that, you have a Federal Reserve whose mandate essentially is to curtail inflation. And Joe uh, Powell knows that, even though he helped spur it by keeping uh, printing money at astronomical rates well after the pandemic's worst part. So he knows that the, the, he's got to get rid of inflation. Yeah, I mean, one, one problem that I think, if you, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are saying, oh, they shouldn't go be so hawkish on inflation. You know, why can't we have 5% inflation? Why can't we have 4% inflation? Uh, you know, people forget that, you know, those are people that are living in a bubble because average people, working class people, are having a hard time putting food on the table because of inflation. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Do you know any, which I know a lot, you know, family in Queens and, uh, and Long Island, and, you know, people, the, the stories are coming back that it's, it's hard to put food on the table, harder and harder because of inflation, which is deep into food prices. Uh, we should point out that while gas prices are going down, obviously, you know, they're around, I see, I see $3, a $3 print every now and then, you know, three and change. Uh, diesel prices are still very high. And, you know, that's, that's a huge issue because, you know, that's how truckers use diesel. So we get our food a lot from trucking. And, you know, so their costs are going up. So this is right. a bad thing. Powell knows he has to slow down. The only way he can do this, because the federal government is not going to, uh, you know, help the supply side, is to slow down demand. And that's create a recession, essentially. Uh, which is weird, uh, uh, talking to Charles Casperino, because in the past, when you want to get down recession, you'd also cut spending. They're doing the opposite, coming off a pandemic where they printed money. Here's what Brian D said. He's the National Economic Council director. Cut one. If you look at most of the data points over the course of the last couple of months, we've certainly seen headline inflation on a month-over-month basis. Uh, slow dramatically. Basically, it's been flat for the last couple of months. That's a function of the fact that we've seen energy prices uh, come down, gas prices, uh, uh, and that's offset price increases elsewhere. Well, gas prices have gone up for the last four days, but he says it's holding, holding at well, uh, astronomically holding at high. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a double talk. Um, by the way, you know, there, there is a Keynesian theory that you that in a recession, you spend more to get you, get yourself out of a recession. The supply side theory is that you cut regulation and taxes and uh, because it's a more efficient way to get yourself out of a recession. But, you know, what the problem we have now is that we have stagflation, essentially. We have an economic slowdown with inflation. And, and there's really nothing you could do about that other than get rid of the inflation part so you can start doing something on the demand side with either spending or tax cuts. And, you know, that's the pickle that the, the Fed is in. So it's, you know, and, and it's a lot of this is self-inflicted. Uh, we should point out that the theory is let a lot of people say, well, just let inflation rage. By the way, that will lead to an, a recession. There comes a point where there's just, you know, when people, when, when you can't afford basic things, they just don't buy it. And I think that's one of the reasons why gas prices came down is because people stopped Filling up their tank so much, it was a, it was a function of not having the money, and so inflation does at some point lead to a recession. And the question is, do you want, you know, a wicked recession with inflation, which is kind of what we had in the '70s, or do you want, or can you manage it? And uh, that's what the Fed's trying to do right now. Uh, again, 
and, and Charles, no, what does that mean for housing? What does it mean? And what does it mean for housing? And what is it going to mean for jobs six well, months from now? It's already hitting housing because the Fed is raising interest rates, and that's reflecting in higher mortgage rates and buildup of inventory. And that's what's going on. And so housing, we should, we should point out, is a, a way a lot of Americans count their wealth, not just you know money in the bank or stocks. It's what their houses, housing costs are worth. And that's the problem right now. So all the signs are we're heading for a recession. It was self-inflicted by way too much spending when we didn't need to. Uh, also, the Fed kept kept printing money when we didn't need to. And now we're paying the price. The American people pay, are paying the price. So uh, we also know this. The student loan forgiveness doesn't seem to be going over big. The, uh, we, we know the, uh, the latest report is it's going to cost $400 billion. Some say even more. Uh, Biden had some reservations about doing this. Senator Schumer th- and Elizabeth Warren thinks it's the greatest thing ever. How's this going to play out, Charles? You know, that's a that's an interesting one because it plays out to young, I guess, millennials and Gen Zers that are already, uh, you know, they got their fine arts degree from Yale and Harvard and can't find a good job. So it plays out well with them. But, you know, it's just it's, it's such a I, I don't I quite from a political standpoint, it's kind of idiotic because, you know, Republicans will run on the fact that, OK, you went to Yale and Harvard and can't get a good job that pays for that three hundred thousand uh, dollars that you owe the government. But some some guy went to uh, you know welding school, you know, technical school and a community college and he took out a loan. But he's got to pay back that back. And we should point out the welder probably can pay it back. But, but right. you see where I'm getting at here. There's a, there's a, Unfair. There's a question of fairness uh, that if, that really gets at the working class that, you know, the Democratic Party, you know, proclaims to uh, you know care about. So I, I just, uh, you know, it's, it, it baffles me. It's Listen, if you re- I, I read enough stuff that there is some legal issues with this, whether the president can do it. It's being challenged now. Something like this. It's being be challenged. challenged. You know, I just wonder if it goes through it, too. I, I just, it, it sounds like it's, it's a messy situation. And, uh, and by the way, that's part of the problem with inflation. I mean, if you think about it, the minute Jerome Powell said, I have to deal with inflation, Biden started spending. He, he announced this thing, which isn't quite the check isn't written yet, but, you know, inflation expectations get priced in. He spent another $1.9 trillion on, you know, it was called the Inflation Reduction Act, which was a joke because it's going to spur inflation. It was a lot of green energy giveaways and, and boondoggles. So that's going to spur inflation. So in, in, in the face of what the Fed has to do, he keeps spending, creating much more demand than the economy has supply. It was completely illogical and unnecessary. So my guess is that we're going to have to grind through this for the next six months. I mean, I, hey, I could be wrong. I'm hey, not an economist, but I've seen, it, I've seen this play out in the past. Charles, uh, the CEOs of all the major banks of the country uh, appeared on Capitol Hill last week and were treated uh, pretty uh, ruggedly, let's say. And famously, they didn't like what they had to say in a lot of circumstances, including Jamie Dimon. When you were watching that, being that you know the politicians and you know the bankers and you know the people on Wall Street, how does that play on Wall Street? Because for the most part, they all voted for this administration. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if Jamie really did pull the lever, although he might have, because I don't think he was a big fan of Donald Trump. Uh, but, you know, he's always James always had his reservations with the uh, the progressive left of the uh, the Democratic Party, even though he counts himself as a Democrat. He was highly critical of uh, of, of Obama, 
uh, you know, he's he's obviously critical. He's critical of, of a lot of policies when he was up there, which, you know, um, I mean, especially that, that ESG nonsense that yeah. is being pushed, that companies have to literally scale back on their carbon footprint immediately, which means no more drilling, and that in, in, a, in itself becomes inflationary. He, he said it was absurd. And uh, so, you know, I think a lot of the, the, the CEOs, and I just remember covering this going into it, were, like, upset about the way Donald Trump acted, really upset after the January 6th thing, but they've already cast their vote by that point. Uh, but they were always in the back of their head. They were worried about whether, you know, Biden was given was, – was, essentially paying too much lip service to the progressive left, that he was a captive of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and AOC, because he clearly was touting that during the campaign trail. Biden supporters would come back and say, no, no, this is an act. You know, this is Amtrak Joe. He's really a, you know, he's really a moderate Democrat, you know, the original moderate Democrat. And, you know, he's just, when, when he, when he gets in office, he'll right. revert to form. And I think now they realize he has I mean, you go down the line on his economic choices. Brian Deese, who's an ESG environmental, you know, zealot when he was at BlackRock. He was the guy at BlackRock, the big money management firm, that tried to get portfolio managers to adopt all these ESG standards. And, you know, he has he had no real Wall Street experience before he even went to BlackRock. That was it. And it was as a salesman for ESG, essentially, not as a money manager. And you go down the line and you look at all his economic choices at the FTC, at the FCC. It's really mind boggling how left, mm-hmm. I mean, progressive left, maybe even socialist he's turned. And um, and I think they're worried about that. So a couple of things. Axios reporting today. Uh, we're up against a clock here, but that Janet Yellen's going to be leaving right after yeah, the midterms. Yeah, 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 and yeah, Brian yeah. Deese may yeah. be right By after. Way, Your thoughts? They ripped me. They ripped me off. I reported this on Fox News and Fox Business in June that she was on the way out and her likely replacement was Lois Romando, who's a very competent Commerce Secretary, we should point out. Again, much more in the vein of, uh, of what Jamie Dimon would like as a moderate. But, you know, we, uh, Fox Business and Fox News have been down this road before. I, I find it, it, it amazing that, that Axios just dusts off our old stories. <laughs> But uh, I actually wrote a column about it in the New York Post, too. That's the funny thing. Uh, All right. I don't think Buck is going to get that job, though. I, I think it's going to be Romando. Uh, Gina Romando. Okay, Charles Gasparino, yes. I appreciate uh, bringing your journalistic integrity to our show. Thanks for being first. Anytime. Thanks. Literally uh, kicking off the show. Uh, when we come back, I'll take your calls, one 408 If you're anywhere near the Florida area or any near the coast heading up south all the way up north, you're going to be in the eye of this huge storm, this uh, this Hurricane Ian which is at a Category 4. We're right on the cusp of Category 5. Unbelievable. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. 
Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. But in the States... It not only has implications for people's health care, which will be cheaper, for drugs that will be cheaper, prescription drugs. It has limits on uh, for lower income folks. They will not anybody learning four hundred thousand dollars or less is not going to pay a dime more. It has uh, it, it has uh, reduction on the deficit in it. What about 87,000 IRS agents? You bring up that. What does it have on the economy? Nothing. What about reduction of the deficit? If it is going to happen ever, it's not going to be for years down the line. They do a prescription drugs that allows the government to bid uh, for the cheapest price, but you'll get the cheapest drugs too. John Kerry weighing in, trying to do some damage control after he said the Inflation Reduction Act is really a green energy bill. Uh, Welcome back, everybody. Vivek Ramaswamy will be with us shortly talking about uh, non-politically correct economic challenges that are straight ahead for us. Uh, Meanwhile, the president of the United States is really looking at some headwinds when it comes to what's happening politically. Because if you see crime, the economy, inflation are the top issues. Moving down the wire, down the line, is abortion, which they have to run on. And not in the headlines is Donald Trump, which is an advantage to for them. Matt Continenti, American Enterprise Institute, was out with Brett Baer last night and thinks things are switching back towards red wave-like behavior. Cut 15. For 30 years, crime gave the advantage to Republicans in a national political context. Of course, crime, it's crime's impacts are felt at the local level, at the municipal level, but politically it has big national consequences. And so what we're seeing as crime surges, as violent crime surges, Republicans are reaping the benefits. And I would also say, too, of course it's liberal policies that are creating this crime surge, whether it's on incarceration, whether it's on policing, whether it's on addiction, on homelessness. All of this is creating a crisis in the cities. And even though there aren't many Republicans in the cities, Republicans will benefit nationally. Yeah, because uh, a lot of people are getting beat up, a lot of people are getting robbed, sucker punched, knocked out. And guess what? In this age of surveillance cameras, it's not only coming across, it's coming off clear. It's if it's a three-camera shoot. It's making people seem and the numbers reflect that crime is out of control in this country. That's what makes it a major issue. Senator John Kennedy, I'm sure he's running on that in New Orleans where there are at least 1,000 cops down. 1,000. Cut 14. We're going to have to hire more cops. New Orleans, in my state, needs 2,000 cops on the street. We've got less than 1,000. Number two, we're going to have to pay our cops. Number three, our political leaders need to stand behind our cops. Number four, we've got to get rid of these prosecutors whose mantra is see no evil, hear no evil, prosecute no evil. And number five, I would tell people, if you care to, avail yourself of your privileges under the Second Amendment. Now, I've said this before, and I mean it. I believe love is the answer. I do. But I also own a handgun just in case. (laughs) Uh, Right. we got to learn to protect ourselves. I mean, the police will do it if they're there, but if they can't lock people up and they can't keep them in jail, we're on our own. Vivek Ramaswamy will be with us. He'll bring some light and some color, some depth to our economic argument.
the talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The Inflation Reduction Act will be an accelerator of action way beyond just what happens in the states. But most importantly, it has really serious money as incentive for the deployment of renewables, for the manufacture of renewables, for the deployment of electric vehicles, the infrastructure for it. This is a job creator. You hear that a lot in politics as people are saying it's going to, this is a massive job creator and it's going to put the United States of America in a very strong position to be leading on a global basis. Right. Uh, he wants to talk about green energy. Uh, he wants us to get in electric cars. He wants us batteries to get rid of the combustion engine. Too bad the rare earth is in China or the Congo. Uh, too bad we have nowhere to throw out these batteries. And too bad every major car company says they are unprepared to the demand in which they've gotten already, let alone if there's a massive demand around the country. We are not ready. Windmills don't work effectively to, uh, to take care of a whole city. Wind technology is not there. We'll probably never be there as well as solar panels and we do not have a jobs problem we have a worker participation problem uh ask everybody in the administration unemployment's never been so low and so great we have 11 million unfilled jobs so that is not an issue but it might still be it might soon be an issue because of the direction this economy is heading vivek ramaswamy joins us now uh strive asset management founder and author of the brand new book nation of victims identity politics the death of merit and the Path back to excellence. Vivek, welcome back. Good to talk to you, Brian. So what do you think about uh, Senator Kerry? Is this is what passed two weeks ago really going to help the economy, the, the Inflation Reduction Act? No, I don't. Uh, I think that somehow we have a uh, Orwellian language right now of, of misnaming <laughs> a, a policy proposal. You know, I would say if if war is peace, and diversity is conformity, then the Inflation Reduction Act is, is really not about fighting inflation at all, but about advancing other objectives that ironically could contribute to higher inflation, but even more importantly, I think undermine potentially long-run American energy security and other objectives in the name of fighting the thing that Americans actually care about addressing right now, fighting inflation, not only to make that problem worse, but using it as a vehicle in a moment and a label to advance agendas that otherwise would not have been politically acceptable or palatable, but for the label that you put on the front. Um, fortunately, Brian, I have to say, uh, the trick happens to work. It's, it's rather successful in, in marketing something that misaligns with what the thing that's actually being marketed. Right. Here's Brian Dees, the director of National Economic Council. Uh, he's saying this about the state of our economy. Cut to. I am fundamentally optimistic about the American economy, and I'm optimistic that we can navigate through this transition in a way where we come out of this as a country and as an economy in a stronger position uh, than when the pandemic hit. Uh, Are you that confident? I am sorry if I'm not. Um, I mean, I'm confident in American resilience over the long run. I think our history teaches us uh, that we have a, a nation of resilience, that we have been through tough times and we're able to rebound from it. I personally think that the economic hardship that's coming, that we're already in, but that's coming over the coming years, I hope can be a source of cultural fortitude for us to actually get our act together over the long run by recognizing the mistakes that we made that got us into this hardship. So in that long run sense, I'm an optimist, Brian, but as it pertains to the economy, look, we have a double whammy right now. We have a problem. On one hand, we have inflation, which one way you, 
got it. One tool that you're going to have to use to fight inflation is to raise rates. We're already seeing the Federal Reserve raise rates. We are out of the chronic zero interest rate environment that we got addicted to over the last 15 years. But unlike the last time we had to get into a major rate raising environment under Paul Volcker, under Ronald Reagan, we're raising rates against a backdrop of policies that are also fundamentally unfriendly to business, to commerce, to enterprise. And that was the difference in the Volcker era, because there you were raising rates, yes, to fight inflation. Yes, that has an effect on, on putting a damper on economic activity, but it's against the backdrop of policies that still spur economic activity. And the two sort of balance each other out. I think here, people miss this fact. We're in a double whammy where both you're going to hit the economy hard by raising rates. It may be necessary to fight inflation as part of the plan to fight inflation, but against the backdrop of economic policy that absolutely is unfriendly to business from a regulatory perspective without the deregulatory or taxing or, or, or tax reduction agenda that drove the Reagan stimulus to the economy. And I think that that double whammy, I think, spells uh, for some difficult times economically ahead. But I hope in the longer run for our culture, we will still be fortified by it. But I don't agree with, with the rosy assessment that you just played from, from Brian Deese. He's the author of Nation of Victim. Vivek is with us now, Ramaswamy. I want you to hear this something that took place last week because I want you to comment on that. Jamie Dimon, along with all the, the big uh, banking CEOs, went to Capitol Hill and were treated terribly, including with this question. Cut. Uh, let's listen. Does your bank have a policy against funding new oil and gas products? Absolutely not. And that would be the road to hell for America. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Sir, you know what? Everybody that got relief from student loans has a bank account with your bank should probably take out their account and close their account. So you get the anger from those uh, who on the way left could have never balanced a checkbook, but want to go after people that are capitalists. What's your response to that exchange? Isn't it emblematic of something bigger? It is emblematic of something bigger, but the under-discussed part of that exchange, Brian, is I'm glad that Jamie Dimon's saying that now. I wish he was saying it two years ago at the end of the day. Right now, it's become popular for people to come back to the point of view that I've been advocating for for a long time, that companies should focus on maximizing the return on investment of their projects, so should financial institutions. And even if that means drilling more, fracking more, great. That's going to be both good for the economy and the people whose money you manage as well as for American energy security. Unfortunately, it took a crisis this year. We're in a generational energy crisis in this country. Yes, one of the catalysts was Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine, but using that as as an end-all, be-all for forgetting the fact that we have underinvested in fossil fuel production over the last several years misses the broader point. So I'm glad that certain, I would say, more moderate business leaders like Jamie Dimon are now able to say that out loud. I wish they had had the courage to say it when the ESG-driven agenda dominated capital markets over the last couple of years that systematically underinvested in fossil fuel production. And now, are there still people right. politically that, that are still saying the crazy thing? Absolutely. But I think that that's, that, that's to be expected in some ways. But what, what, I, what I hope for is that business leaders like Jamie Dimon are as courageous in, in the future when it's harder to be courageous as opposed to now when it's obvious. Uh, Vivek, yeah, I don't know if you heard this yesterday. The audio was not great. I won't play it back again, but let me just summarize. The president of the United States basically starting to blame oil and gas companies for making record profits while the prices for the last six days have gone up at the pump. What's the reality? I mean, the reality is put yourself in the shoes of an oil executive or an oil company. Pretend you own one, Okay. If there's an administration coming into power that says that they want to enact policies that 
cause your industry to end, to end our dependence on fossil fuels, to even end the use of fossil fuels over a 10 to 20 year time frame, then why are you going to make massive investments today in fossil fuel production if that is going to be in a business that the policymakers tell you they want to ultimately end over the course of the next decade or two? It doesn't make any sense. Now, I personally believe that some of those companies have also underinvested in fossil fuel production because their own shareholders have pressured them to do the same thing, including firms like BlackRock, which, by the way, Brian Deese is an alumnus of. So in some ways, some of the market pressure, the so-called market pressure on companies to reduce fossil fuel production has just been an arm of the government doing the same thing through the back door. But I think the reality is that you can't implement government policies both through the front door as well as through the back door that cause companies to disinvest and divest from fossil fuel production and then criticize them for doing the same thing when you are actually a big part of the reason why they did it. Right. So it's pretty obvious when you see it, when you take the when you take the, the goggles off and look at it with plain eyes. But I think the more we see that, I think the more that, that everyday citizens are able to hold, hopefully, our political class accountable at the ballot box, but also use their dollars to hold the companies that are investing their money to be able to say that, you know what, I don't want you using my money to advance these agendas either. And I think that's going to be the two-prong approach required to turn the ship. Um, let's talk about that if we can, because you put together Strive because you feel as though many of these major companies are not striving to be capital. That means uh, maximize profit for their shareholders because some of these boards have been infiltrated by people who have maybe an anti-business attitude on these boards. What is Strive looking to do? Sure. So, so to make it really simple, Brian, what, what's happened is you have large investment managers like BlackRock and Vanguard that have aggregated trillions of dollars of capital from everyday citizens. And they're using that money to tell oil companies to drill for less oil, natural gas companies to frack for less natural gas, to enact the goals of the Paris Climate Accords, to fight climate change. Well, guess what? Most of those everyday citizens, certainly many of them, do not want their money used to advance that political agenda. That's a fiduciary gap. That's a fiduciary breach. That's changing how corporate America behaves, using the money of everyday citizens to do it. So, so what I do with Strive is, look, we found a new company that says, you know what? We're going to speak on behalf of everyday citizens by telling companies with shareholder power that they should focus exclusively on selling products and services for profit, do it unapologetically without advancing someone else's political agenda. And so for Americans who want to advance climate change agendas or racial justice agendas with their money, it's a free country. They're free to do that. Strive would not be a good home for their capital. But for everyone else who wants to exclusively pursue a financial objective without apology, that's why Strive you know, was created. And, and I'm proud to say we launched our first two index funds. The first is a U.S. energy index fund called Drill, D-R-L-L. Our message to U.S. energy companies is to drill, to frack, to do whatever you need to do to maximize profit over the long run without apologizing for it. That's the message we're delivering to U.S. energy companies. So, so drill, DRLL, is listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And then we just launched a second one, Brian, of 500 of the largest public companies in the United States, an index fund called the Strive 500. That's STRV, also on the New York Stock Exchange. And the goal there is to just tell companies to focus on excellence over politics. And you might have seen some of my shareholder letters that I've sent in recent weeks to the boards of Chevron, of Disney, of Apple, using a shareholder voice to bring this voice into the boardroom. And I hope it has an impact both on capital markets and on our corporate culture. So, Vivek, you got an Ivy League graduation. No one gave you anything, but you compete. 
So Nation of Victims doing really well. Strive is doing well. But you you put yourself in the arena. You could, you know, it, it, there's a chance it'll struggle. There's a chance of uh, would you, your next project will struggle. But you want to compete. Do you feel as though a lot of Americans don't want to compete? And if you don't want to compete, it's because you're afraid to lose? Or, um, or, you, or why is it that people don't want to get in the arena these days? Yeah, it's, it's a good point, Brian. And I've had failures in my career, no doubt. I mean, one of the first drugs I developed was a drug for Alzheimer's disease. We had high hopes for it. fell flat on its face. It was a failure. It's a hard area to develop drugs for a reason. And you know what? It's easy to look at a failure and to claim a victim status, okay? My message to America is that hardship is not the same thing as victimhood, okay? Hardship can be what teaches you who you are, both as an individual and as a people. And I think we as Americans need to remember that. Why is it that so few people are willing to take the risk of hardship, to bear the burden of hardship, to be able to even take the chance of creating something worthwhile? You're right. We live in a moment where not enough people do it. I think part of it is that we have this culture of entitlement, Brian, and that's why I took a pair of books to write. So, so it's a book-length explanation for how we got here. But, you know, I think part of it is that, you know, we, do, we are in the middle, for example, of the largest intergenerational wealth transfer in human history, from baby boomers to millennials. I think that that creates a culture of entitlement. Entitlement breeds laziness. Victimhood fits laziness like a glove because it justifies that sense of entitlement and laziness by giving you a claim on what somebody else created rather than what you created yourself. And so victimhood becomes a product of convenience. It's not that it's true. It's not that it's actually how people felt motivated in the first place. It's that they were entitled and lazy as a culture. And then victimhood became a way to morally justify it rather than to have to actually admit failure. And so, so I think these are deep-seated psychological issues that, that you know, we need to look at with clear eyes. I think we need to look ourselves hard in the mirror every day and ask ourselves why it is that we're so prone to want to describe ourselves or see ourselves as a victim. And I think once each of us does that hard work, we might be in the beginning of our path back to excellence, which was which is what I hope to lay out in the book that I most recently put out. And what you hope would happen with parents and in schools, but it doesn't seem to be happening enough. Vivek, congratulations. Pick up his book, Nation of Victims. He expands on it. He also went on Bill Maher's show over the weekend and took the fire and gave it back. Uh, Vivek, thanks so much. Appreciate that, Brian. You got it. Uh, when we come back, we'll take your calls, one 866 We'll read your emails at briankillme.com. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. We have a brand. New York has a brand. And when people see it, it means something. You know, when we go there, it's not, Kansas doesn't have a brand. (laughs) (laughs) When you go there, okay, you're from Kansas. (laughs) No. Well, you know what? (laughs) But New York has a brand. Yeah, that is uh, Mayor Adams forgetting that he's mayor and putting down Kansas. And the last thing I need, uh, the people of this country need, is New Yorkers' arrogance coming out again. I say as a New Yorker. Uh, what are you thinking? People in Kansas are great people. They got a brand, a Midwestern down-home values, a lot of military bases. Um, and by the way, an unbelievably college, an unbelievably great college uh, basketball team. Uh, what's the brand in New York? Now we got crime and rampant subway attacks and uh, sucker punches. That's our brand. Um, you think it's about the Knicks? Uh, Ezra, you're in Atlanta. Hey, Ezra. 
Yes, sir. Good morning. Uh, I just want to make a comment about John Kerry. At what point is he going to realize how irrelevant he is and what an absurd program he's got going on? I mean, can you imagine trying to evacuate Florida and beat this hurricane and you got to charge your electric battery, hope you're not stuck in traffic and you're going to put another 1,500 pound extra battery in the trunk? I mean, the whole thing is not ready for prime time. They need to go back to hybrid cars and let's just start there and everybody will be happy what do you think i mean i had a hybrid car it was great but didn't get me much better gas it was a suv that they didn't push because there was no more demand for it but john Kerry, i'm done with him i i thought he's been done arrogant aloof hypocritical i mean this guy wants us to suffer while he goes out literally on his yacht and literally on his private plane and he tells people well, i need to do that in order to get the message out that's my way of transporting myself and nothing he does saves energy but what he's trying to do with us is bring fossil fuels to its knees and and hurt us in every shape and form and if you want to see it played out ezra look at what governor newsom's doing in uh, in california nobody's happy about that as you sit there get ready to wear a, uh, a sweater or coat in your house in the winter and uh make sure you don't mind sweating in the summer in your house why in this day and age paying the taxes we do sacrificing and innovating like we are, do we have to go back to the caveman era of not having climate control? Because he claims it's going to affect to a great degree of the future of Earth. The other big story that I was talking about earlier on television was what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. And uh, I think it's amazing to me that tens of thousands of people are heading towards the border there. And there was a blow up of a pipeline by the Russians, it seems. And the Ukrainians are beginning to prevail. And this is what Jerome writes. Uh, you're likable, Brian, but you're a warmongering. Uh, your warmongering taints your message. To equate the fall of Ukraine to a theory, a domino theory of bringing down the rest of Eastern Europe that includes NATO countries, is not true. I'll expand on what I was able to. Uh, what I was saying, Jerome. If you see what happened, when we didn't challenge Russia effectively when they took Georgia. They stayed. When we didn't atta- challenge them under Barack Obama and they took Crimea, they stayed. And if they went ahead and took 25 to 50 percent or ate all of Ukraine up and put their own people in, Poland would have been next. All those Baltic nations would have been infiltrated or flat out taken over. And that would have happened. But we stood up. From the Fox News radio studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Yes, uh, thank you, Carl Rowe, for bringing me back down to earth. Uh, Rich Lowry is standing by, just getting ready to join us from National Review to put in perspective what the number one issue emerging it for this midterm election is, and it is crime. And the Democrats have learned uh, that they deserve the blame for that, and Republicans are more than willing to let them have that label. They want to run on Trump and abortion, and I think that's fading by the day. We'll see what you say. Steve Case in studio, co-founder of the AOL and author of a book called The Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs is, are Surprising Places, in Surprising Places, are Building the New American Dream. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We all need to work together regardless of party lines. Uh, The Biden administration has approved our request for a pre-landfall declaration and did that very quickly. And it's my sense that the administration, you know, wants to help. 
Uh, yes, and right now they are helping themselves in Florida. Ron DeSantis meeting with the press. Over 40,000 uh, workers ready to help in an emergency situation because Hurricane uh, Ian is here, and it is a Cat 4 bordering on Cat 5. Number two. The murder rate is still 30% above its 2019 level. They're all from the Council on Criminal Justice. So I'll, I'll say this. Um, that same story also uh, stated that the crime is complicated and multifaceted. Ah, crime matters to Americans each uh, each and every day in every community across this great country. Sadly, I predicted, and you probably did too, this clearly and concisely a couple of years ago amidst the Democratic war on cops, reimagining police, and now the streets belong to the criminals. Number one. We've certainly seen headline inflation on a month-over-month basis uh, slow dramatically. We've seen energy prices come down, gas prices, and that's offset price increases elsewhere. Oh, here we go. That's Brian Deese uh, in front of the Economic Club of D.C., and he's a key economic advisor to the President of the United States. Money matters. From the fallout over student loan forgiveness to rising gas prices and interest rates and now a housing slump and job loss looms to crashing uh, uh, the administration and the economy. Not a good combination right now, but you wouldn't know it by listening to their so-called experts. Hey, Rich, I understand that you want to spin things to your to your advantage. But point out that things are actually happening to your advantage. Don't tell people things aren't happening. For example, don't say this is a positive economic environment. Don't say student loan forgiveness has been uh, welcomed overwhelmingly. And please stop telling us that the market, uh, the dip in the market is temporary. Not many people believe that. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like everything else they said, right? It's inflation being transitory. They said that what felt like almost for a year until they had right. to give that up. So yeah, the stock stock market dip is temporary in some, uh, in the longest term sense. You know, it, it the market always goes up eventually, but it doesn't mean it's going to go up again right away. And it doesn't mean that you don't have a whole bunch of indicators flashing red on this economy. Uh, the job market, you know, is still strong. Um, thank God. So the unemployment number still looks good. But if the rest of the economy goes down, the job market is going to go down with it. So it, it looks like we're heading for a recession, you know, sometime over the, the next six months, which just, just adds to the pain. If you had inflation eroding away people's wages, and, and now you're going to have more economic pain on top of that probably. Well, at the very least, and I could play a cup, but it just, it just uh, aggravates me so much. I'm not going to do it. He talks about – Brian Deese talks about how – uh, the inflation rate hasn't really gone up in the last few months. It's remaining consistent, consistently high. It's like, I've consi- right. you know, consistently just below nine. So are yeah. you kidding so con- me? Consistent at like two would, yeah. would be something to brag about. Yeah, consistent at 8.5 is not. <laughs> Again, it just shows they don't have a good story to tell here. They uh, are grasping for straws. And the economy is something that, you know, every president tries to spin it to their advantage, right, as, as you alluded to earlier. But the underlying facts are what determine it and how people feel about their their personal lives and personal finances determine it. And, and all those poll numbers look, look catastrophic at the moment. And you write that about that in the latest column in your National Review. But uh, there are there's a study done, I, I believe Fox News just did it, on the issues right now uh, that concern voters the most. Number one is the economy, as you mentioned. Number two is inflation. You could put that under a subset. Number three is yep. education in schools. And number four, on and on the uh, ascent, is crime, followed by abortion, then immigration, then climate change. About 51% of people list that. If you talk about crime and you want to see an advantage, 
Crime goes to the Republicans by about 22 points, inflation by 18, the economy by 17, and believe it or not, immigration only by one. Crime matters. And people remember who was saying defund the police. Who took a billion dollars of the New York City NYPD budget? What happened in Minneapolis to allow the police station to get stormed? You can't spin that. Am I right, Rich? Yes, and and there's just been a Republican ad barrage on this, and key swing states in terms of control of the Senate, you know, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, where you have Barnes in Wisconsin and Fetterman in Pennsylvania, really partook of the the spirit and the the letter of these anti-incarceration, anti-police movements, and are are trying to squirm out of it. Especially Barnes, who who supported no um, and, and abolishing cash bail in Wisconsin, and earlier this year his campaign was saying he wanted to end it nationally. You know, and you look what that's done to New York City. It's just been a, a total debacle and helped drive the wave of disorder uh, in the city. So, so they, they are, they're being hit on this. It's clearly working. They're running defensive ads on it and also making their, their go-to argument on this that they have for like 30 years, which is you can't talk about it. It's, it's racist. Even though you look at Milwaukee, you look at Philadelphia, and 90 percent of the victims, homicide victims there, are black and brown. So how is it racist to have uh, policing and policies that diminish that sort of victimization rather than make it worse. I, I think a lot of things that are coming to play, uh, play right now is instead of people saying, hey, I was wrong, I, I think we overcompensated, this is my new position, then people can decide what to do. With, instead, a lot of these politicians are deciding, hey, I'm for strong, I'm, I'm a law and order candidate. I'm for cracking down on criminals. Uh, I am for uh, backing the cops without acknowledging that's a total yeah. change from where you stood you know, whether yep. it's, you know, whether it's uh, Karen Bass, who was just robbed and who wants to be the next mayor of uh, Cal- in California. Scared, scared yeah. to live in her own city. And Fetterman, too, wants to let out all secondary murderers out of prison. We, do we yep. forget that? Yeah, so uh, I, I welcome converts, but... Uh, on across the board, but they have to be legitimate and honest converts. So if you if you say, as you suggest, I favor defund the police, for instance, and I realize that was wrong. It's been tried some places. You know, police budgets have been cut. We're losing cops. We can't hire cops. Uh, and it was a mistake. And now I reverse myself. I'd say, great, you know, well, welcome to the club. But as you say, that's not what they want to do. They want to fuzz up their position. They want to play victim and say, you know, th- these these kind of ads that are being run against them are, are racially charged, uh, which is false. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the, their, their heart of the hearts is still where it was in 2020. They were very sincere about that, and they haven't really changed their minds. They, they haven't, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, Matt, Con- uh, Matt Continenti was on with uh, on special report yesterday of the AEI Cut Twenty Seven. This election favors Republicans when you look at the president's job approval, when you look at voter assessments of the economy, when you look at historical precedent. Usually the first midterm does very poorly for the president's party. But, you know, we're still about six weeks out, which means that there's always room for one of these candidates to mess it up with a gaffe or some unplanned act. And um, you can always count on one or two of them to do exactly that. So, and when you talk about those one in tough and tough, J.D. Vance is in a surprisingly tough race. You know, Herschel Walker's in a tough race. Not a surprise to Raphael Warnock, who wants to hold on to that uh, job for six full years. And then you have uh, a tough, a tough run for Dr. Oz and Fetterman, which astounds me because Fetterman seems to be uh, nothing, nothing of which Pennsylvanians want. That's no fracking, light on crime, lazy, no legitimate accomplishments, and basically yeah. Bernie Sanders in a hoodie. 
Yeah, and and has suffered a significant health health event that uh, uh, reduces his his ability to perform. But you know, Oz has done better, and we've talked about that in in recent weeks. But still, you look at the real clear. You go to the real clear politics polling page for Pennsylvania, and there's not one poll that shows Oz ahead. So there's still more work to do there, and I, I don't discount him. I feel pretty good about Herschel. Uh, I think J.D. Vance is going to win in Ohio. Ron Johnson's looking better in Wisconsin. I, I like Laxalt in Nevada. I, I've close to giving up on Blake Masters in Arizona. Uh, but, you know, a lot of these races, as, as Matt was saying on Special Report, you know, they're on a knife edge, and what, what candidate performance matters. I, I agree with you. Uh, what about Don Bulldog to the general in New Hampshire? I understand that people on the ground say he is like a Scott Brown. All he does is is out is outwork everybody. He's doing a ton of uh, a ton of town halls, and he's going with uh, Maggie Hassan, who is probably the weakest Democrat uh, in the Senate right now. Do you think he'll close the gap? Paid uh, granular attention to that race. Um, I've just looked at, looked at you know the, the general polling, which looks New Hampshire now looks kind of grim overall for Republicans. Uh, but I had not heard that that he has people think he has a Scott Brown um, appeal going or kind of drive going. If so, great. Um, I'd, I'd be a little surprised, but I don't discount it. I, w- I want to bring you to what's happening in New York, and I don't know if you've seen some of the horrific footage that is shown. Uh, we have this woman who just walk out, gets uh, accosted verbally by this guy who's coming on to her, and she blows him off. And then he beats her senseless to the point where she's probably going to lose an eye, uh, was kicked and beaten, not a cop around. A pedestrian tried to help her out. Yesterday she spoke out. She says, we're all alone here. And then you see the bodega owner that gets shot. We see what's going on uh, in the city randomly. And the mayor, Eric Adams, who I have not even seen the police commissioner do anything except one appearance since she got the job. Adams, who has a police background, seems to be front and center. And this is some of the bizarre things he's saying. Listen to this. Cut 24. We have a brand. New York has a brand. And when people see it, it means something. You know, when we go there, it's not. Kansas doesn't have a brand. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when you go there, yo, okay, you from Kansas. <laughs> no. Yeah, well, you know what? <laughs> but New York has a brand. So uh, for people who think uh, New York is arrogant and thinks they walk on water, there you go. Let's put down the Midwest. Yeah, Kansas has a brand. I don't know, I don't know what he's talking about. Look, he's a, he's a bit of a flake. You know, it was clear uh, beforehand that, that he was a bit of a flake. But, you know, he was saying all the right things. Uh, during the primary and saying them even though he was under political pressure you know, from the left, which he resisted, which in- encouraged a lot of people. But he's been an utter disappointment, an utter disappointment. And you know, there's some things that are out of his hand. He can't change the bail law which is such a debacle because it's a state thing. But, you know, Rudy, when he came in, I was in New York in the bad old days, uh, 92, 93. When, when he came in 93, instantly felt a difference. You know, they, they had these announcements on the subways. Do, don't give any money to, to vagrants. We'll take care of those people. It's a, a public safety and a, a nuisance threat to give them money. Don't do it. You know, immediately, immediately they like signals like a dozen public signals like that, and you could feel things changing. 
And it's not as though if you walk down the streets in New York City, you're, you're likely to get assaulted. You're not. But these horrific stories you just mentioned, they create fear in your mind, right? And you have to be afraid again in New York. And that's just set the city back, you know, like 30, 40 years. And Eric Adams, that should be his sole mission, should be fixing that. And he, he's either not capable of it or not willing to do it or some combination of the two. We've got about 15,000 illegal aliens going up in a tent city in the Bronx. People are outraged. They might be the most fervent Democrats. They say, who are these people? They might be the greatest people in the world. You might have the next Einstein in one of those tents. But what are they going to do all day? They're going to sit in cots? Where are they going to put their stuff? They don't speak English. Where are they going to school? Uh, I guess we're writing additional checks. Already, 47% of all your income comes out in taxes. And then you have the city tax on top of that. So if everybody opens up their wallet and says, I know you have bills to pay, but we got to give it to Venezuelans, El Salvadorans, uh, Bolivians, Brazilians who don't belong here. Instead of Eric Adams using his in with President Biden, he wants to blame Abbott. Well, they did a look at the numbers. It turns out only 90 percent of the illegals are from Texas, are from Governor Abbott. The others from a Democratic mayor of El Paso and from those planes landing in the middle of the night. Yeah, so I mean, it just it just brings home the, these these folks, and I, I don't blame them for coming here. I mean, because we give them the green light, right? And, and we're yeah. we're just opening the door, so you know, it's not their fault that they're taking advantage of it. But they're a burden on communities, and what the Bronx is is feeling right now is what communities around the country, especially around the border, have have felt for a very very long time. The, these are people, you know, and uh, they're. they're they might not even have a high school education back from their home countries. They don't speak the language. They're desperately poor, and they're going to have needs for health care, for education, for public support. And it's a burden on communities, and it's not fair. No one in the Bronx, you know, the, the, these folks aren't, you know, it's not an affluent community. They have problems of their own already, and to add to it is unfair, which just goes to the, how the whole situation is wrong. And we should be securing the border, and instead of having let in 1.35 million people since Biden got inaugurated, illegal immigrants, they all should have been excluded, right? And the ones that have legitimate asylum claims, you know, they can sit in Mexico, and if they if the claims uh, prove out and are accepted, fine, they can come. But it'd be a fraction of a fraction of the amount we've let in. And this is just, it's uh, wrong on every level. Yeah, I mean, this, this, I think six out of every 10 Americans lose paycheck to paycheck. A lot of them will come home from their uh, one job, especially in this inflationary cycle, and go to another. And they'll probably walk by those tents if they're in New York, and they'll say, something's missing here. I had no vote in this, and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm tired of being politically correct when my family and my friends have to suffer, and I'm working 60 hours a week, and I'm on a treadmill. Uh, Rich, you write about all these type of issues in your columns, uh, and this one's your latest. You, you tackle what's going on with crime. Thanks, Rich. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. one 408 7669 Listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Well, I think part of the divide we have in this, this country is uh, an opportunity gap. There are some people in some places like you know, Silicon Valley are doing really well. 
And a lot of people, a lot of places that are struggling, feel left out, feel left behind. The, the new jobs, the new companies, the new industries are happening someplace else. And that leads, understandably, to frustration, even, even resentment. So we, we have to be backing entrepreneurs everywhere. We need to make sure they, anybody who has an idea, can start a company. Uh, that is Steve Case, who's going to be my next guest, co-founder of AOL and Revolution, uh, and a New York Times bestselling author. His latest book is now out, The Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs is Surprising. Uh, in surprising places are building the new American dream. He's going to be with us in a second. Uh, let's go to Chuck real quick. Uh, listen to KZRS. Hey, Chuck. Uh, hi, Brian. Hey, nice to talk to you. Same here. Uh, What's on your mind? I love your show. Um, I, I just I had a comment about uh, you were talking with this New York mayor about, and he had this comments about Kansas. Uh, well, I live right in the middle of Kansas. And I was born and raised here. I went and spent 30 years in the Navy and came back. Um, you know, he needs to hike his happy butt out here and see who's feeding this country. Thank you. Absolutely. The military base is there. The hardworking people that are there. Unbelievable college basketball team, I could add, uh, who have great pride in being from Kansas. Just the arrogance of New Yorkers. And I say that as a lifetime New Yorker. That is not the attitude of a mayor that's going to be inclusive. From his mouth to, to your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. How do you manage a remote and growing workforce? Um, how do you think about all the different social issues and prioritize those while also prioritizing growing your own company? I think it's a hard time to fundraise as a founder, and I think it's also a hard time to think about how to keep your employees happy and healthy. I joke that the best thing you can do as an early entrepreneur is move back in with your parents. One, because that uh, keeps expenses low, and two, because it's highly motivating for you to get your business off the ground so you can move out. Uh, those are some of the entrepreneurs speaking up uh, and speaking out about the hurdles that they've had and uh, some advice that they give. Steve Case is co-founder of AOL and uh, the American, American Online Revolution and New York Times bestselling author. His latest book that's out now this week, The Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. Steve, welcome. Good to be back with you, Brian. Yeah, great to see you uh, in person doing the book. The Rise of the Rest. That just is not, not only is that a great title, it's the name of the program that you really this was that really drove you. Yeah, no, it's been for the last decade been traveling around the country trying to understand what's happening in different parts of the you know the country. We had bus tours to see cities like Pittsburgh and Nashville and Minneapolis and Phoenix and you know Dallas and Des Moines, all over the country, just trying to see what's happening because there's so much focus these days on the tech sector, and so much of focus on just places like Silicon Valley. Innovation is happening all across the economy. It's called, happening all across the country. But there's not much focus on those entrepreneurs, not much focus on those cities. And that's why I wrote the book. It's, a, I think, a pretty optimistic view of, of what's happening in America that's not really getting reported on because there's so much focus on uh, of the media, on the, on the big cities, and even on the, on the investors, the venture capitalists. 75% of the venture capital in the last decade has gone to just three states. California, New York, and Massachusetts, seventy-five percent, uh, and so other states, whether it be big, big states like Texas or Illinois or, or uh, Florida, or even somewhat smaller states like uh, Minnesota or, or um, Ohio, others, 
they get very little venture capital. As a result, the entrepreneurs there get very little opportunity to start companies. And, and, and as a result, those communities don't get a lot of job creation. So we have to create more jobs in more places. And the best way to do that, in my opinion, is to back more new companies, therefore backing the entrepreneurs. And that's why I wrote the book. So you brought the money and investment to them rather than making them come to New York, Los Angeles, or Washington, D.C. Yeah, well, yeah, so there has been, for the last several decades, kind of a brain drain in parts of the country where people who want to be part of the tech sector, the startup economy, generally felt they had to leave where they were because there wasn't much focus on startups there. And that, that led people to you know, typically go to the coast, often to, to Silicon Valley. What we're trying to do is slow the brain drain of people leaving for better opportunities and create a boomerang of people returning because there are unbelievable opportunities in these cities as they build up their startup communities, as there is more capital there to back those entrepreneurs, as you see more jobs being, being uh, created there. So I think it has a broader societal impact. And we also figured if we were able to prove that investing in, in entrepreneurs in these places can generate top-tier returns for investors, that will lead others, other investors on the coast to start paying attention to the entrepreneurs in the, in the middle of the country. And that is now starting to happen. The pandemic actually has been helpful in that, frankly. It's sort of a, a little bit of a tipping point in terms of Because we couldn't travel. Uh, you know, the Mr. Mr. Innovator who was, I'm going to go to New York City. I'm going to go refine my dream. No, we're not allowed to. And there's nothing happening there anyway. So then all of a sudden, maybe we got to stay here and, and well, do it. Two things happen. One is one is the investors in places like Silicon Valley, because of the pandemic, suddenly, instead of having in-person meetings with entrepreneurs, had Zoom meetings with entrepreneurs. And they realized if we want to have a Zoom meeting with entrepreneur, it doesn't really matter if that entrepreneur is a mile away or a thousand miles away. That opened up the eyes of a lot of investors to the fact there are great entrepreneurs building companies uh, you know, everywhere. The other th- thing that happened is some people in those places, whether it be here in New York or San Francisco or other, other places during the early part of the pandemic, said, you know what, rather than stay here, I think I'm going to move somewhere else. Either I'm moving home uh, or, or I'm moving to some other place to – because uh, and, 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 if I, I'm going to work remotely, I'd actually somewhere else I'd rather live. And a lot of those people have decided to stay there. And now you're starting to see some of those people move into the startup economies in those in those uh, you know, cities. So I think this bodes well for what you know what can happen over the next uh, you know, decade. That we have to figure out ways to create more opportunity for more people in more places. We can't just back a few people in places like you know California and not you know entrepreneurs all across the the country. And what did you find? Because you do have this credibility as one of the most successful entrepreneurs ever, and you really have more responsibility for creating the Internet than maybe anybody else on the planet, and you know that, and you did it at a very young age. Yet you did not have any connections. Born in Hawaii, you weren't born with a bunch of, you know, your uncles and aunts weren't CEOs of major corporations. So your life story sells this program. Yeah, no, I, my life started growing up in, Ho- in Hawaii. At the time, actually, Hawaii wasn't a state. It became a state on my first birthday, and, and Hawaii was kind of out of it. You know, we'd even get television programs a week later because the satellite technology hadn't developed. So it just felt a little bit out of it. Then I went to you know, college in Massachusetts, and I worked in Ohio. Then I worked in Kansas. Then I you know, worked in – I moved to Virginia, and that's really where we started AOL, you know, 37 years ago. Um, and it was kind of a lonely place outside of Washington, D.C. It wasn't a startup city. There wasn't a lot of venture capital. There weren't a lot of people focused on, on, on startups. And I think that experience of starting a company and struggling a little bit to, to get people to pay attention, to get investors to you know, believe in what we were doing, I think uh, is part of the reason I feel this empathy, this passion to support the next generation of entrepreneurs and, and do it in, in, in cities all across the country. So with our Rise of the Rest Fund now, we've invested in 200 
companies in a hundred different cities all across the you know the, the nation. And there's some amazing companies. There's one in Chattanooga, Tennessee, called Freightways. It's built this data platform, kind of like a Bloomberg for for the trucking industry. I didn't know this till we were there on our bus, but the, some of the biggest trucking companies in America are in Chattanooga. So, of course, well, that's a great up, place. Just back up, you to... drove around on your bus. You yeah. paid to the bus. You, you, yeah, you no, we, we said we're going to hit the road. Eight years ago, we said we're going to hit the road, see America. And, and uh, we've done a number of these tours. Uh, and when we go to these different uh, different cities, we really spend a lot of time, six months really, before we get there trying to understand what's happening. When we're there, we try to connect other people in the community, inspire them to focus more on uh, entrepreneurs, and we have pitch competitions where we invest in at least one. Almost like Shark Tank one. without the cameras. Yeah, well, Shark exactly Shark Tank with with the uh, with, but to bring the community together to support their startups and bring the nation together to understand that that there are interesting things happening in different parts of the the country and all the action, not just in the the big cities like uh, New York, Boston, you know, San Francisco. Even and who they, invested in your fund that allowed you to invest in others? Oh, well, it's an amazing group. We have about 35 of some of the most prominent, uh, you know, kind of individuals in the country, entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos and Howard Schultz and Tory Burch and Sarah Blakely, you know, private equity investors like Henry Kravis and David Rubenstein, hedge fund people like uh, Ray Dalio, uh, and, you know, venture capital investors like John Doerr, you know, Jim, Jim Breyer. It's uh, some families like the Koch family and the Walton family, the Pritzker family. So we really tried to reach out and say – Join us on this mission. There are great entrepreneurs everywhere. They're creating companies everywhere. That are creating jobs everywhere. That are creating opportunities everywhere. And we think by backing them with investment capital, we can help them scale, and they'll be more successful. We'll generate great returns, and we'll also have a positive impact on those communities, particularly by creating jobs in a lot of places that that have been struggling because the innovation economy has often, you know, kind of uh, left them behind. You mentioned the company in Chattanooga. Yep. Do you have some other companies? Oh, it doesn't. Were... That's why I wrote the book. After spending a decade doing this, I, w- I was so excited by the stories we were, we were hearing from the companies, from the from the cities. I, I said, most people don't know what's going on here. I have to write this book and share this with, uh, with, with the world. But I will give you a few other examples. In eastern Kentucky, uh, there's an entrepreneur, Jonathan Webb, uh, who, who uh, grew up there but then moved uh, to the coast and decided to move back to start a company focused on farming called App Harvest. And he built now what's the largest indoor greenhouse in the country. And it uses 90% less water, so it's, it's good, good for the, uh, the environment. And the nice thing about where they're located outside of uh, uh, Lexington is 70% of the U.S. population is within a 24-hour drive. So it's actually easy to get the fruits and vegetables to different, different, uh, different markets. And as you know, that, that area, which is known as kind of Appalachia, coal country, has, has struggled for the last uh, several decades. A lot of the industries they relied on you know, were, were in decline. Jonathan, through App Harvest, now created 500 jobs in an area that most people didn't really think had that same possibility. Or in Richmond, Virginia, there's a company we back called Temper Pack that's working on sustainable packaging. Uh, they've, they've grown quite significantly. have hundreds of employees now, just raised a big round, led by Goldman Sachs, over $100 million. And they actually started in New York City. But when they were starting to build their manufacturing plant for this, this packaging, they decided to move to the whole company to, to uh, uh, Richmond, uh, you know, Virginia. So that's another example. There's also a story in, in, uh, outside of Indianapolis, suburb of Indianapolis. There's a mom who had some experience in the tech sector, uh, and this was after the Flint water crisis. She was kind of concerned, like, well, maybe my kids, are their water isn't safe. And so she called the water company and said, I want to get my water tested. And they said, we don't do that for, for individual people. Um, and then she called somebody else and they said, well, do that, but it'll cost you thousands of dollars to do that. And she said, well, this is 
this is crazy, and started a company called 120 Water to initially offer you know, families the ability to have their water tested. Now she's selling that capability to cities, including cities like San Francisco. So as somebody who saw a problem, this is what entrepreneurs do so well. They see a problem. And then they do something about it, and they do something about it by starting a company. The, the news here is you know, don't have to just be in a certain places like, like California to start a company. You can start a company anywhere. So if you're out there and you have some idea, hopefully this book will give you a roadmap to, to, to take that from idea to reality uh, and attract the capital you need, attract the team you need, attract the attention you What do you, you have need. to see in order to get, to get uh, your company to invest in theirs? Well, first of all, we partner with now with over 300 uh, regional investment firms. So we work with them all because we're trying to do this all across the, the country. So a lot of the opportunities come from those investors that, that, that say – Did you find it – sorry for this naive question. I have the rich business background. You do. Do you find there are the investment firms in these smaller areas in the northern Virginias of the world, in Kansas, and you come in to help the investment firm find the entrepreneur? Well, it's changing, and it's a great question because a decade ago, generally in most parts of the country, there wasn't much of this capital. I mentioned even when I, my own experience in, in uh, Northern Virginia when we were starting uh, America Online, there wasn't you know, venture capital. But that's changing. Over the last decade, 1,400 new investment firms focused on startups have, have been launched all across the country in what we call these rise of the rest cities, which means outside of San Francisco, outside of New York, outside of Boston, outside of the big Tech hub. So now there is more money there for those early investments, seed investments and so forth than there was before. So the entrepreneurs there, they have an idea, have more of a capability of, of raising the capital to, to scale it. They don't have to move to a place like California to do that. They can stay where they are, start where they are and, and figure out ways to tap into the, you know, the, the startup community that exists in, in dozens and dozens of cities. And we profiled them in, in this book. Are you tapping uh, innovation or are you hoping to inspire entrepreneurs to innovate because you understand fundamentally that's what made our country great? People that had that can-do attitude to make a difference and why not me? Did you worry on some level that we were losing that? And do you feel that part of your mission is to uncover that and reignite that? Yeah, absolutely. I actually start the book. The first uh, chapter of the book talks about uh, America about to celebrate its 250th anniversary. And you four, remember four selling the 200th anniversary I was at the 200th anniversary. I'm now the chair of the Smithsonian Institution. And, and so in, in Washington, we have 19 museums, and we're working on the planning for the 250th, which is four years from now. And that's how I kick off the book, reminding people that 250 years ago, America itself was a startup. It was a fragile country that almost failed. That everybody wanted to fail. And most people around the world thought it was a joke. Most, just as many people look at startups and think, you know, that, that's not going to work. Most people did not think America was going to work. America worked. Why? Well, in part because the entrepreneurs kind of led the way 200 years ago with the agricultural revolution, then led the way 100 years ago with the industrial revolution, and more recently led the way with the technology revolution. And that's why I went from this fledgling startup nation to the leader of the free world because we have the leading economy because we've been the most innovative nation. But we are seeing kind of a globalization of innovation that if you look at venture capital data uh, 25 years ago, over 90 percent of venture capital globally was invested in the United States. Now it's under 50 percent. 
So many other countries, obviously China being being one, but there are many other countries are trying to lead in the technologies of the future, the industries yeah. of the future. So we need to double down on our entrepreneurs, but we have to do that everywhere. We can't just keep backing the people just in places like Silicon Valley or Boston. We have to be backing the people all across the country. And that's why I wrote the book. I do want to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs. I do want to inspire people in those communities to support those entrepreneurs. And I do believe if we are more inclusive in reaching these places that often have been left behind in the last 10 or 20 years in terms of capital and innovation, then that will maximize the likelihood America continues to right. lead and also could help unify a divided country by closing at least in part this opportunity gap where a lot of people kind of feel left out, left behind. How do we create the jobs for them so they mm-hmm. can be part of the future? Absolutely. Steve Case, our guest, when we come back, this question, China has taken away the profit mo- uh, motive. They've also squelched a lot of individualism. Will that hurt uh, their innovation in the future? To me, the answer is yes. We'll see what Steve Case says as he comes back, continues to talk about his brand new book, The Rise of the Rest. Back in a moment. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Steve Case is with us. He's co-founder of America, uh, uh, co-founder of America Online, of course, Revolution. And New York Times bestselling author, his latest book is The Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs uh, in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. Uh, Steve, you're so multifaceted. First off, as we come up on our 250th uh, anniversary of our country, uh, are you getting concerned that the average American doesn't appreciate how special, while not being perfect, this country is? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of focus on, on the challenges the problems kind of the what's what's not going right which i think is understandable you need some of that i mean not what's going you know but i think you need more of the focus on the things that that really are the reasons that america are special and and unique and that's part of why again i wrote the book on rise of the rest because part of that story is the entrepreneurs that have helped build the country and the, the new entrepreneurs now in these rise of the rest cities that are kind of building the next chapter of the the American story and, do, and doing it by innovating in healthcare and food right. and financial services and transportation and doing it all across the you know the country. So there are a lot of great things about this country that sometimes we you know we uh, forget. And hopefully this uh, this book will. It's, it's a lot of bad stuff out there in terms of uh, you know inflation and Ukraine and all this other stuff, which I, I don't want to make light of. Obviously, there there are issues, but you know the book is meant to be an optimistic view of the yeah. future of America. Right. Uh, and if you think about our founding fathers, they were multifaceted. You right. know, George Washington was just in, wasn't just a general. Thomas Jefferson uh, wasn't just the first secretary of state. I mean, they were multifaceted. They had to do, learn to do everything. And Benjamin Franklin, great inventor, great entrepreneur, yeah. as well as uh, being a, a great you know, kind of patriot. Um, when you had so much success early, is that a difficult challenge in retrospect? When you have all the success and and you still have two thirds of your life straight ahead, did you have to? Was that something that needed to? Did you had to take time to wrap your head around? Yeah, a little bit. Although I'd, I would say uh, my my own story was a story of struggle for more than a decade before AOL was successful. But how old were you when that? Uh, we, we started the company. Was, uh, I was twenty five. Uh, but it was probably not till I was 35 that things right. really took off. That we went, I remember we went public. It was the first internet public company to go public. It was 1992, so 30 years ago. 
Um, and when we went public, we raised $10 million in our IPO. Uh, we only had 200,000 customers. Uh, the value of the company was like $70 million. And really, nobody knew or cared about AOL, knew or cared about the Internet. It was viewed as sort of this fringy, hobbyist thing right. that would never be mainstream. Uh, and a decade later, it was one of the most valuable Can companies we- <laughs> in the world, like tens of millions of customers. But but as a result, I, I think it, it, that struggle was helpful to me. It was not an overnight success. And now you pass it on. The rise of the rest. Go pick it up and be inspired. How entrepreneurs in surprising places are building the new American dream. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Brian. You've got mail. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country. Heard around the world. Uh, in a matter of moments, Martha McCallum will be here. And then Bill Hammer will come barging in at 1134. And Carl Rove has agreed to appear. This has been confirmed in a matter of moments. We're watching the horrible situation which seems to be unfolding in Florida where this hurricane is actually wider than the Florida Peninsula and working its way up the coast. The good news is it did not descend on Tampa, but uh, the bad news is it did on Fort Myers. And it seems to have missed Tampa to a degree, although it's not totally out of the woods, and Miami. Keys have paid the price, and it's working its way all the way up north. We'll keep you up to date on that, so let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We all need to work together regardless of party lines. Uh, The Biden administration has approved our request for a pre-landfall declaration and did that very quickly. And it's my sense that the administration, you know, wants to help. Uh, But it did take him a while to get the president to call the governor. They seem to be rivals already. Governor DeSantis had already had two press conferences this morning. The winds are at 155 miles per hour. Serious stuff. Number two. The murder rate's still 30% above its 2019 level. They're all from the Council on Criminal Justice. So I'll I'll say this. um, That same story also uh, stated that the crime is complicated and multifaceted. Yes, that explains it. Great press secretary, KGP, JP. uh, Crime matters to Americans more each and every day. What does it mean for the midterms? We'll discuss. Number one. We've certainly seen headline inflation on a month-over-month basis uh, slow dramatically. We've seen energy prices come down, gas prices, and that's offset price increases elsewhere. Ryan D's trying to spin things in a uh, monotone way, but positively, money matters. From the fallout over student loan forgiveness to rising gas prices and interest rates, and now a housing slump that looms and a job loss that also looms, is everything coming crashing down before the midterms? And can you imagine if they were not emptying our strategic oil supply, which has got many people, including me, uh, worried. Carl Rove joins us now. Carl does everything, always stays ahead of the curve, especially when it comes to politics. Carl, welcome. Uh, your, sta- your take on what Brian Dees just said. He sees a lot of positives in the economy, fundamentally optimistic. Is he right? No. Uh, that's why uh, the American people... Um, rate the president rather poorly on the economy because he doesn't understand the reality. We're suffering from inflation. We're suffering from an economic slowdown. It's probably going to get worse before it gets better. I had a friend, I have a friend in Dallas who uh, is um, involved in a group of private companies, mostly started by families, but all privately held uh, across the country. And they have a dinner every quarter. And they had a dinner in Dallas here recently. All the guys and gals flew in from around the country, 
And of the people there, all but two were planning to reduce employment, cut back on hiring because of softening conditions in their businesses. And that's happening everywhere. Everybody's put, everybody's felt experience of going to the grocery store. I love it. D says, oh, but gas prices down. Well, actually, they're on their way back up. And and, and, and they're actually, and last time I looked, this is last week, about $1.31 a gallon more than they were when Joe Biden came into office. And there's nothing the administration has done to expand supply. In fact, they've, they've moved to constrict supply. And it's been reflected in everything, you know, in everything that we buy that has a hydrocarbon in it. And it's also been reflected in everything else, We virtually everything else we buy. So a couple of things. Uh, you're right. Gas prices are ticking up again. And they are above where we were when he took over. And guess what he's trying to do? To vilify the, uh, the oil companies. And number two, he's trying yeah. to do the, is including gas stations. Uh, bring the price down. Oh, really? Bring the price down. It's the refinery capacity. And if you really want to do it, uh, I believe in the Virgin Islands, we have a refinery ready to go. If you really want to refine at a greater rate and ease the pressure on the American people and not worry about your green agenda, you would have done that. Yeah, Brian, you don't. You may not know this, but the administration has in place a new regulation on small refiners. That basically makes it makes it very much more expensive for them to operate, and involves retroactive fines on them for having you know gotten uh, exemptions for for what are called RINs. These are special air uh, air uh, quality uh, credits that the grants these these exemptions uh, when the the credits are not available for purchase in the marketplace. And the administra- this administration is saying, well, we're going to go back four years. And remove the exemptions that were given to you by us and previous administrations, and fine you for you. Know, you're going to have to now pay us. How is that allowed? For the exemptions that we're withdrawing, and How that's that going to have immediate impact. You can't Pardon do me? that. You can't do that. How can you? How can that be allowed? Because because they're they're, they're setting out a rule that says we we can do this, and the immediate effect will be to drive up the cost of gasoline. For example, you know, in, say in in Georgia or Alabama, where they're small refiners uh, plus providing supply. The immediate impact will be in those markets to drive up costs, but it's also going to literally drive some some refiners out of business because, yeah, some of the small refineries, refineries are part of large enterprises that can somehow figure out how to maneuver this for the next year or two, but a lot of these are, are standalone entities that simply won't be able to stay in business. Look, September 13th, NBC News came out with a poll. Which party is better able to handle the economy? Forty-seven percent said Republicans. Twenty-eight percent said Democrats. The ABC poll, Washington Post poll, came out on September twenty-one. Which party is better on inflation? Fifty-four Republican, thirty-five Democrat. So the Democrats are in bad shape on this, yeah. on the economy. Yeah. And no amount of happy talk from Brian Deese, who, who who needs a charisma implant, is going to is going to turn it around. Well, not everyone can have the charisma of Janet Yellen, so it's a hard, uh, it's a high bar. Uh, Top issues facing voters right now, according to Fox, uh, 85% listed the economy, 79% inflation, which is really the economy, 77% in education, I was surprised by that, and 67% crime. And if you see some of this video, which is just about in every corner, especially in New York City, you're horrified by it. Look at what's happening in Philadelphia. Here's the city councilman, this guy named David O, joined Laura Ingram last night, cut 13. I think it will continue to get worse because the uh, leadership of our city um, is not recognizing that the, the policies that they've installed uh, have produced um, this type of wanton uh, violence um, in every which direction we can see. 
innocent uh, children, uh, seniors, uh, uh, people just going about their own business, being shot multiple times. All of this um, has resulted from just a lack of law enforcement. A disrespect. And, and it's up and down. I could have I could have played as a councilman from Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and certainly New York and Washington. These are all Democrats-run city. Almost every urban environment is. And it's out of control. And that's why I believe crime, and you would know better, is going to be one or two by the time November 8th rolls around. Yeah, well, a couple of things. First of all, many of the cities that you mentioned have a George Soros-funded and backed prosecutor. In fact, in Texas, of the five major counties in Texas, Harris County, which is Houston, Dallas, Barrett County, which is San Antonio, uh, Travis County, which is Austin, and Fort Worth, which is Tarrant County, Four of the five counties, only Tarrant County, does not have a prosecutor who was elected by a mound of money from George Soros. And we're seeing these same kind of policies uh, being played out uh, in, in Texas. Now, we don't have you know, the, the, the same kind of very uh, progressive, very left-wing uh, bail law that New York has, but we're seeing it here. You, know, you, mentioned, that you mentioned important issues, uh, and, you, and you, you read off a list based on how important people thought it was. ABC poll did something interesting. They made people make a choice. What is the most important issue that has to do with your vote? 26% said the economy, 21% said inflation, and 14% said crime. Now, you add all of those up, and that is 61% of the electorate saying the most important issue is the issue that the Republicans are talking about, economy, inflation, crime. By contrast, 22% picked abortion and 13% climate change, leaving 35% of the electorate prioritizing the Democratic agenda. 61% of the people say the most important issue is something the Republicans are talking about. 35% say it's an issue the Democrats are talking about. Right now, uh, the Fed's raising rates at a regular basis to uh, – on a pretty routine basis to uh, attack inflation. They said it could cost the economy about one million jobs. It's certainly going to do a job on the housing market. What's unique about the way they're handling this, unlike the era of Ronald Reagan, uh, when Paul Volcker combined with Reagan and Greenspan to do a job on it, they cut spending and regulation. Here they're increasing spending. I've never seen that combination work. Have you? No. In fact, Reagan also cut taxes and cut cut unnecessary regulations. And think about this. Yes, the Fed is raising interest rates. So what does the uh, what does the administration do? It goes out and says we're going to give a half trillion dollar giveaway, increasing demand. We're going to write off student loans up to twenty thousand dollars, and and we're going to pump another half a trillion dollars worth of demand in the economy. And then we're going to have an unspecified rule change that is anticipated. Uh, to add another $120 billion uh, of demand into the economy. And and then they have a meeting two days ago at the White House to talk about ways that the president said to help families by, you know, and cut prices. And what was their recommendation? Well, let's make the airlines let people know additional fees before they board the airplane. Uh, okay, so h- how exactly is that going to reduce prices uh, for uh, for people across the country? I mean, they don't have any answers. They're just simply making it worse. They are Inflation is too much money chasing too few goods, and what are they doing? They're focused on ratcheting down the supply of goods by making it harder for companies to compete and manufacture, making it harder for our energy industry to to be to make our country energy independent, and by uh, and then by uh, dumping a bunch of money. And right now, it's nearly let's see, I want to say eight trillion dollars of additional spending since since the Biden administration came in. 
I want to uh, pivot to international relations, what's going on in Russia. Uh, Nord Stream 2 has been, uh, it looks like there's been an explosion. Excuse me, Nord Stream 1. Nord Stream 2 is, is not going to go online. And that would provide natural gas to and oil to Europe. Uh, and there's a lot of speculation about what happened. Here's Trey Yinks, cut 35. Gas bubbles penetrate the surface of the Baltic Sea. Under the water, three gas leaks within 24 hours have been detected from the Nord Stream 1 and 2, pipelines that Russia and European partners spent billions to build. It's definitely something that begs the question, is this actually sabotage or uh, some kind of hybrid warfare that we are witnessing here? While neither line was operating when the leaks began, European officials are investigating what caused the pipes to rupture. Poland's prime minister blamed sabotage for the leaks, and Ukrainian leadership is already blaming Russia, calling the event a terrorist attack aimed at destabilizing European energy security. Russian officials did not take responsibility, saying the Kremlin is extremely concerned about the leaks. What, what do you make on this call? You're always a step ahead. It wouldn't work to Russia's advantage to blow up the pipeline, I wouldn't think, because their goal is to make uh, Russia, for, excuse me, Western Europe forever dependent on them. So this is escalating, clearly. Putin is getting uh, hammered, clearly. His country is turning on him to a degree, running away from him, and his 300,000 call, uh, man call-up. So what, do you, what role does Nord Stream 1 and 2 rupturing play? I find it very likely that, that this was Russian done, that the deliberate sabotage to keep, you know, you keep opposing us and we're going to starve you for energy. And here's how vulnerable your uh, energy uh, infrastructure is. The Norwegians have stepped up uh, security at all of their energy facilities because they have seen uh, drones uh, and uh, surveilling some of their um, offshore installations. So look, just follow you know follow the the trail here. Who who would benefit from Western Europe having energy supplies constricted further? Russia, and uh, there's no doubt in my mind that this is an act of uh, Russian sabotage and uh, a subtle message, a not so subtle message to Western Europeans: back off of, of opposing me in Ukraine. The problem is Putin, I think, is misreading Europe. Europe has now awakened to the fact that Russia is a threat to their independence, their sovereignty, their economic vitality, and that they have to find an alternative to Russian gas, and they're going to find it. Some of it may be U.S. gas. In fact, there's a German delegation coming to Texas at the end of October and then going to Louisiana to inspect the natural gas transfer facilities there, LGN, liquefied natural gas, that would come out of the United States and go to Europe. And uh, there's a vital interest in establishing other sources of supply, whether it's the United States or uh, Persian Gulf nations or, or even inside uh, their own region. I mean, we know that Poland and Great Britain and other countries have uh, formations, geological formations that are highly likely to contain large amounts of gas. And that's Liz Truss, the new prime minister of Great Britain, has basically uh, said, uh, I'm, I'm removing the ban on fracking in uh, in England, we've got to become energy more energy sufficient. 
And if uh, they would do that in the rest of the country, uh, we would be able to, you know, Robert O'Brien, I'm up against it, said that they had a plan to have a pipeline through Portugal or Spain that would go through Europe and we set up an LNG terminal yep. and we would be the we would be their natural gas supplier. The French stopped it because they were concerned about the environmental impact on the Alps. Now they've reversed that. But we have an administration that has no interest in that, which I think is terrible for a friend of Europe to not do this. Is uh, is under? Uh, I think it's underreported, uh, but not enough. But it's certainly noticed. Yeah. Well, certainly, and and, and real quick, uh, is burning more coal like they're having to do now, and burning wood, uh, is that good for the environment? Nope. Is that good for the climate? I mean, what what a natural gas pipeline, as you described, it would do is it would help bring about a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in Europe, just like the use of natural gas in the United States in lieu of coal. And other uh, sources of energy has brought about a decline over decades now in the United States. He is Carl Rove. There's nothing he can't handle. Carl, thanks so much. You bet. All the best. Martha McCallum, in a matter of moments, then we have to deal with Bill Hammer. Challenging conventional thought and wisdom. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, uh, Martha McCallum, I did something very rude. I went very long with Call Road. You did? So this is only going to be like a two-minute segment. But then we have a whole half hour. And bad news, Pete invited uh, Bill Hammer, your arch rival. Oh, so I'm, I'm going to leave. I'm not doing that. You're I'm angry. not doing that. No, I, I'm very angry. Carl wrote, what did he say? That was so exciting that you had to keep him on for so he long. He just my broke down Carl. the biggest midterm election <laughs> in history and also how a German delegation is coming to Texas to try to get natural gas uh, from. Oh, that is interesting. In order, yeah, what about the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipeline? I'm fascinated by that story. Do you, Whose advantage is it to blow up that pipeline? Carl Rove thinks it's question. to Russia's. That's the question. I don't really I, think so. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's even some people speculating that it was the U.S., uh, that did it. I heard that. Um, There's no way we blew yeah. up a pipeline. Yeah. I, I mean, it, you know, it, it's possible that it happened on its own, but that doesn't, it, you know, the problem is you can't believe anyone in this story because the, the Danes and the Polish leadership have their own reasons to say that it was Russia who did it. So it's, I, I mean, you need to have a serious investigation to figure it out, but it's, uh, and there was no, there was no fuel going through it currently. I don't know. I think, I, I mean, my I lean towards the Russians looking at the whole thing. It could be ham-handed way in yeah. which they think they're going to get into the West. All they're doing is expediting the movement towards another uh, Western Europe going somewhere else Absolutely. for natural gas and oil, and which they should have done everywhere. to begin with. They're scrambling everywhere. It's so embarrassing for Germany to put themselves in this situation, which everyone told them was exactly what would happen. You do not want to be beholden to Russia for all of your energy, and they did it anyway. It was it's a Merkel. dumb move. Merkel, absolutely. It falls on her. And now they're scrambling all over the Middle East and everywhere else they can find. Norway trying to get sources for natural gas. And it is, it's all their own fault. Yeah, and, you know, we could, we could be a much bigger help. And talk to Robert yeah, and Brian could. and other people we could. We come back with Stuck with Bill Hammer. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. We have a brand. New York has a brand. And when people see it, it means something. 
You know, when we go there, it's not a, Kansas doesn't have a brand. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, when you go there, yo, okay, you're from Kansas. <laughs> no. Yeah, well, you know what? <laughs> but New York has a brand. So think about this. Uh, New York's known as arrogant, self-important, uh, pretty much as a mayor that's making it clear to the Midwest and everybody else, Kansas is the example, that we have a brand. We have a brand, a reputation to keep up with. Bill Hemmer's here. If you're smart enough to get Fox Nation, you'll see that Martha McCallum's here. And uh, Mayor Adams got ripped for saying that uh, because, number one, you have crime running through the streets. There's a lot of things about mm-hmm. New York that are attracting people. Yeah, what exactly is the brand? Yeah, <laughs> we have, we're, great at, we're great at making ten cities in the Bronx of people we have no idea who is in. By the way, do we have any idea, guys, how this is going to turn out? We put a thousand cots in a tent. We act like it's the space, the innovation, mm-hmm. the greatest innovation since the space shuttle in the 70s. I can give you a hint. And no place to put their stuff, no place to shower. Where do yeah. they go to the bathroom? Where are they getting a job? Who speaks English? Well, that tent's going to go from 1,000 to 2,000 and 2,000 well, to 5,000. And, it's going to be a massive right? tent city. It's going to look like a refugee camp. What are they going to do? Uh, what are they going to do all day? In, in no time. You know, I was um, coming home last night and um, clearing off all my emails and my text messages before I go to my building. I live downtown in Greenwich Village. And guy comes up, I mean, which... A lot of people do these days. You know, it's no longer the city where people just walk by and don't make eye contact. They're the people who, they, they, they're looking for stuff. And he said, excuse me, I'm from Venezuela. Can you help me? And he was really well-dressed. Um, backpack. I, I thought it was a student from NYU because I live in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And he started speaking in Spanish. I said, I'm sorry, you know, English. And anyway, we got to the point where he pulled out Google Translate on his iPhone. And he was explaining to me that he and his sister are staying in a shelter two avenues away and that he needed money. And we, w- would I help him? And I'm, you know, uh, what do you do? Um, I said, how long have you been here? He said, two days. I-, I assume his story is true. I assume what he was telling me was correct. And I, I told him, and Google Translate that our country has done so much for you. You're lucky to be in this city. And he turned around and walked away and off he went down the avenue and disappeared. And I, I assume he's one of the migrants who got off the bus at Port Authority. And he doesn't like the shelter. He says it's loaded with drugs and alcohol and he and his sister aren't safe there. And well, I mean, that's his story. And there's going to be thousands and thousands 15, more who will be here. And, and that's just one anecdotal experience yeah. that I'm sure other people have Absolutely. had as well. I mean, it's a mess, and it's a mess of our own creation. We lured these people here with promises that they would be taken care of, and now we have to take care of them. I mean, this is where the situation is right now. And it all goes back to not having a safe, secure border, which would be so much safer for the people who want to come across it. The underreported story is the sex trafficking that's going on, young women crossing that border that think they're going to go get house cleaning jobs who end up in in horrific, horrific sex slavery situations. This is, there is, it is so, un, it is such the opposite of compassion, what we're doing in these situations. And you know what, what are they going to do all day? You know, it, it, it should, there should be a work program. You know, if you're going to be here, it should be part of a work program. God knows there's, there's, you know, for hiring signs in every single place in this city and, Martha's Vineyard, too, for that matter, and all over the Cape and everywhere Martha, else. You know, my, you know, my problem with that is that if you give 
15,000 people jobs in New York City, you're going to end up with 45,000 because the word's going to get right back to Central South America, wherever people – they got Saudi Arabia, wherever. Uh, if you come to New York, they're going to get you a job. They're going to put you in a city. They're going to give you an iPhone, give you some it's Nikes, give you a clear bag full of toiletries, and then you'll be able to get a job. Instead of setting up something where you expand the consulates in these countries, first country you come into, you apply, and then we make a, we agree, bipartisan, uh, American, we set up stack tables and go, listen, can you work? What's your background check? I'm going to need two days to find out where you're from. And then we put them into these cities. So preordained to say how many I need in work visa situations. No. Absolutely. But now and once most get people here, who I seek asylum, you know, 80 something percent of them get turned away. The numbers have dropped a little bit in the Biden administration. They're accepting more people as asylum seekers than certainly than they were in the previous administration. But, yeah, if you don't have you have to have a situation where if you're leaving a country because you're oppressed, you're persecuted, the first place that you get to, you have to find that embassy and begin the process. And then we'll let you know whether or not you have a ticket to come into the country. I I was in the UK, right? Come back. I mean, you can't... (laughs) You go through a big process to get into this country. Yeah. Everyone does. Every time you come in or go out of this country, whether privilege. you're an American citizen or not, you have to have your papers ready. You got to have that passport, or you're not going yeah. anywhere except this, yeah. you know, area along the southern border, which is completely out of control. I, I think the mayor in New York talked about a little bit about this about a week ago. I don't know if it's progressed since then. I imagine it has to a degree. I was with a guy over the weekend and. He's you know, shaking his head. He's I don't understand it. You know, uh, you know. I feel such and such way about all these issues, but everybody else feels the other way. And I just, am I alone on this bill or what? And he said, the thing I don't get is that we have men who fought for our country who are living on the street homeless, and the border's open, right? Yeah. Right. The border's open, and what do you get? You get shelter, and you get food, and you get an iPhone, and. He said that's more than we're giving our own veterans. And to a degree, he's right about that point. And what about the abuse of our Border Patrol agents who are working night and day to patrol that border? There's no way they can control the people who are becoming gotaways who come across the border. And then we're hiring, you know, 180,000 IRS agents. With it's money crazy. that could be going to them to help IRS them do agents, their job. More IRS agents than there is going to be Border Patrol, which is it's unbelievable insane. to me. And so to the, see, the thing is, there are issues in this world that are really debatable, and you need a think tank to go through, and some of the smartest people uh, flesh it out. This stuff is so basic, you think to yourself, what am I missing? Are you trying to actually hurt the country, let alone trying to... Uh, help the country. Like, for example, why wouldn't you open up a refinery in the Virgin Islands to speed up the uh, refining of oil and gas for a country to bring the price down? Why wouldn't you set up some type of an emergency operation with Mexico and uh, Canada in order to bring the price of energy down? If you care about the American people first, you'd attack the global market and say, it's an emergency. We've got to handle this. But instead, you're going for an agenda. When you were asked to pass legislation, one piece on a simple reconciliation, you chose a, you chose a green agenda that the country is not set up for. It's That is ridiculous. And you know who's making out like bandits on this whole thing is China. Because China's playing both sides of the energy equation. They have not abandoned any of their traditional energy 
resources. Cold and then on the other side, day. they're building solar panels and lithium batteries and monopolizing the rare earth minerals that are needed to build all of this stuff. So they haven't changed one thing. They're not cutting back on one thing. They're not, you know, trying to get people to drive uh, electric cars. And then on the other hand, they're making a ton of money off of everything that it takes to perpetuate this green agenda, which we have worked, you know, which is coming right into their hands from all from Europe and from the United States. It is there's not a lot of constructive problem solving of the nature that you just talked about. Right. The, you know what they do? Allocate money. And then after our that money. happens, our money, our money, <laughs> yeah. after that happens, nothing. I would challenge anybody to point to one large scale, high employment project that has come out of the infrastructure bill at $1.9 trillion. Can you wow. show me a highway? Can you Great show point. me an airport? Can you show me an energy plant? And if you, you could, show me the plans, if you could, why wouldn't they be showing it to us every single day? Mm-hmm. Right. Look at all these people that are going to work on building this highway in wherever, Minneapolis or St. Louis. This is part of the infrastructure program. They don't even care enough to try to follow through and say, here's what you're getting for all that money. Do you remember when uh, Barack Obama said, Mitch you know, Landry's I found out about it, that? Yeah. What, what happened to him? This would be, a, this would be an unbelievable opportunity for him to establish himself Absolutely. Uh, as a politician who clearly needs something to do. Didn't Herbert Hoover establish himself as a legitimate politician by what he did, I think, with the Red Cross or something in getting aid uh, to Europe after the war? He becomes president of the United States. <laughs> Actually this getting is, stuff done. Right. That's, Eric Adams has such a great opportunity, Bill He Hammer, does. Because he has an in with Biden. He was elected in a city that was, was replacing the worst mayor ever, and he had an opportunity to straddle both sides to yeah. become a national figure. Well, the, the bar was pretty low for him coming in. I, I think we're all still waiting to see what he can and cannot do. And I, I've seen very little change in the city. Other people tell me neighborhoods are great. I, 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 don't, I think mine went from an A to a C minus. Really? Um, but, you know, there, there were a couple of nights last week where the weather was nice and people were on the sidewalks and they sort of they tend to make the vagrants less obvious. But when the streets are empty, the vagrants are everywhere, and they they are in your face. Oh my god! So I, you know, I, I, know. I, I, I don't want to live in a C minus. I want to get back to the A that that I came to know for twenty years. Right. And Eric Adams hasn't done that. And if they care, they would go through these areas and clean things up. And it hasn't happened. When you go out for dinner downtown in Manhattan and they say to you, would you like to sit outside, Mr. Hammer, or inside? What do you say? I, I like to sit outside. Still? <clears throat> Still. It's getting a little dicey. Um, I used to love to sit outside. The last time I sat outside, there was, you know, like a huge, you know, rotting old mattress next to my, ch- <laughs> next to my chair. <laughs> that too. Well, and piles of garbage and like little things screwing around. I was like, you know what? I think I'd rather sit inside. Um, I've got my little Italian go-to down the street. And so I... I feel quite comfortable. They know your name? They don't seat you next to the rotting mattresses. Yeah. Mr. Hammer, where can I, or Mr. Bill? If they saw a rotting mattress, they'd clean it up before we got there. That's all we ask. That's good. That's the point. Right. That's Uh, all we ask. When we come back, I'm going to let you guys decide in the break what you want to talk about. I'll tell you what I like to talk about. But most likely, I want to talk a little bit about Russia and Ukraine, if that's okay. I thought you wanted to talk about Tom and Giselle. We could do that, too. (laughs) Let's find out if there's more to know. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. 
There are people out there in Russia, Russians who do not want to fight Putin's war or put their lives uh, or, or die for it. We believe that uh, regardless of their nationality, uh, they may apply for asylum in the United States and have their claim educated on a case-by-case -case basis. So uh, as far as that, we welcome any, any folks who are seeking asylum, and they should do that. All right, fantastic. Now we're welcoming in Russians. Let's bring in Russia. KJP decided on her own. Not that she goes to meetings and has a policy. Hey, by the way, if you're Russian, you want to yeah. come over, good time. Well, we'll think Bill Hammer and Martha McCallum here. Think back to the debates. I always think back to now President Biden standing on the stage with then-President Trump, and he said, you know, if you're seeking asylum, you should come. <laughs> you should come plenty of room. to America, Biden said, and that's what we that's what we got. Everyone, you know, people voted for him, and now we have, Martha, they you came should come. They came across in Biden t-shirts, remember? Oh, remember? And, and they flags. They would, they, flags, like, oh, please let us in. Please let us in. Yeah. Come on <laughs> and in. And he wants to act open. as if there was no... Doors wide open. I mean, well, that big, beautiful door went to what? Just a uh, <clears throat> wide open desert. Uh, that's yeah. unbelievable. Right? So, so, Bill, just just tell me what you think is going on. Yes, 90, go 98,000 Russians have crossed into Kazakhstan, let alone Finland, a mm -hmm. bigger border, Mongolia. Yeah, Dane and I have been uh, very, we've been obsessed with the, yeah. the airports and the yeah. way the flights have been boarding, uh, uh, filling up. Now they're pulling people off trains. Um, I've, I've seen that. I, I know in that town near the border with Ukraine, it, it seemed like the men at least where they were checking cars, at least in that one town based on the reporting. Look, if Putin were to put an order in place like Zelensky did and said anyone between the ages of 18 and 35 cannot leave the country if you're a man. That would be an enormous global story because Russia is what? Is it 10 times larger than Ukraine? Now, Easy. they did in Ukraine, but it's a much smaller country. They need everybody on board to try and win this war. Yeah, but Putin hasn't gone there yet. I'm not so sure he will, but it was... It was pretty interesting to see the choices the so many Russian people have made over the past two weeks. But all you need to look at is the answer to that question on the part of the people. So in Ukraine, you're living in a country that was invaded by Russia. They rose to fight because they have that national will and desire to keep their country. And they can. Absolutely. And they can, which is incredible. Nobody gave them more than a week in the early going in this. So their strength and and their unity is absolutely an awesome thing to watch. So in Russia, they don't have – the people, they don't want to fight this war. I, I, I read reports of people breaking limbs to get out of going. They don't want to go. They're not trained. They're saying, oh, I'm, I'm, they're sending me to, the, to, you know, to Kursan, and, and I haven't even been trained. I have no idea what I'm doing. To the front lines, and they're calling up the Ukrainians saying, I quit. So this is unbelievable. We're watching a 20-year reign by Vladimir Putin in and out. He left four years. Mm -hmm. And then he said, I'm going to take uh, Georgia. Didn't do anything. I'm going to go into Syria. Yeah, and I'm going to change the direction of war. Yeah. I'm going to go take Crimea, and I'm going to be a hero. And I'm going to mock the U.S. Mm -hmm. and Libya and Iraq and Afghanistan. Meanwhile, on our worst day, we showed great sophistication, adaptability mm -hmm. with modern weapons and have you. They're, they're fighting like it's 1951. Yeah. These um, guys have no organization. The generals are so upset they get in front, they die. 80,000 dead against a country they were supposed to steamroll. Here's the big danger now. You've had these sham referendums that took place over the weekend. Everybody outside of these areas knows it's a joke. Uh, but Putin doesn't think that way. And Putin's going to say, this is Russian territory. These people voted. They want to be part of, uh, of our country. So what happens then if the U.S. continues to give these weapons and Putin says, you know, you've crossed the line. 
You, you are now attacking the Russian people and the Russian country. That's the danger of escalation in this war as I see it today. Absolutely. And that's the setup that he has created for that. The question is whether or not, I mean, he can't do it alone. So he can will that to be Russian territory, but unless he has, unless he has the battle to fight it, He's going to be in trouble. Yeah. I, you know, what, what happens I, everything makes, that we presupposed yeah. about his ability to crush Ukraine appears to not be coming true. Yeah. So Zelensky, Zelensky says it ends in Crimea. There were evidently were preliminary talks where Vladimir Putin says, I'll take the Donbass, formally recognize uh, uh, Crimea as ours. And Luhansk. And, and Luhansk. And then we'll leave the other places independent. Okay. So that means he's given up 15% of his country while he's winning? Really? After yeah. already losing tens of thousands of people? Yeah. But I, I think the real danger point is if, if Putin makes a declaration, what are we going to do? What's Biden going to do? Not acknowledge Yeah, but it. the same Just, thing already happened. I mean, the Donbass region was this yeah. exact – when this war started, it started with that mm-hmm. proclamation. Uh, they went in and said the Donbass region is is ours. It's annexed. And then they walked right over mm-hmm. that line and went into Ukraine. And eventually we started to help Ukraine – uh, militarily, but you know this is how they've done it in the past. I, I think the Crimea offensive is fascinating. I mean, Zelensky has made it perfectly clear that he wants to go back to those original lines, yeah. including Crimea, and we'll see where it goes. Just to touch on the hurricane, about two hundred fifty thousand have lost power. We understand the the hurricane did not hit uh, Tampa, but it did sadly hit uh, Fort Myers, and expected to, it is actually wider than the entire mm. peninsula. Mm. So as it heads up north, uh, Bill and Martha, final thoughts on that? I just say, you look at that radar system. I was just absolutely amazed by by, by Mother Nature. By I the mean, power. The, the power and the strength. And there was a satellite image I was telling you guys, uh, given on behalf of NOAA earlier today, showing the lightning strikes. If you look at that from above, it looks to me exactly like Katrina looked before it came on shore in Louisiana and Mississippi. And Katrina was a three, I believe, when it hit. Well, at right? landfall. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. built below yes. sea level, which is a bad mix. Well, mm-hmm. New Orleans is 15 feet below sea level. You're right. A lot of these low-lying islands in the southwest shore of Florida, they're idyllic, and they are in the target zone. Bill Hammer, Martha McCallum, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Brian Kilmeade From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.